Peering through the fog. The University of Birmingham says we should make more things colder, but warns that making things colder makes other things hotter. David Cameron's been in Iceland. No, not to hug a husky this time, but to embrace technology. It involves a very long lead. Techies at the University of Cambridge are talking about going farther than ever for less. The UN says that the Paris Protocol probably won't go far enough, even though the Buddhists have joined the clamour for a strong climate agreement, but they expect to go a lot further than Copenhagen. And if you fancy a parsnip, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall is giving them away. Meanwhile, the fog and smog is gathering. Hello, this is Anthony Day and welcome to another edition of the Sustainable Futures Show. This week, autumn really is here. The UK has been shrouded in fog which has delayed planes, slowed down traffic and made everything very dull. However, this is nothing compared to the fog and smog blowing across the world from Indonesia. I mentioned the fires in Indonesia briefly at the end of last week's episode. And last Friday, George Monbiot wrote an impassioned article in The Guardian about the situation. He wrote about the endangered species being destroyed, about the face masks distributed to the population, about the children being evacuated, and the smoke extending hundreds of miles and causing diplomatic problems with neighbouring nations. The fires are releasing more CO2 than the United States, and in three weeks they release more CO2 than Germany releases in a full year. President Obama congratulated the President of Indonesia on his policies to stop the fires. The sad truth is that he is powerless to rein in the gangs destroying the forests in order to plant softwoods or palm oil. The Indonesian government's policy of subsidising palm oil doesn't help either. The situation is out of control, uncontrollable even by legitimate government. Many people have doubts and fears about how successful the Paris conference can be. If it ignores the Indonesian situation, whatever conclusions it reaches will not be nearly enough. Toby Peters is Visiting Professor of Power and the Cold Economy at the University of Birmingham. In a new report, Doing Cold Smarter, he says cold is essential to modern life yet it remains the Cinderella of the energy debate. It's overlooked, under-resourced, and all too often relies on energy-intensive, inefficient and polluting technology. If we are to meet the booming global demand for cold, without creating unintended environmental consequences, then we must learn to do cold smarter. He points out that with the predicted growth of the middle classes, 3 billion by 2030, the demand for food will rise by 70% by 2050. Distributing and cooling this by conventional methods, relying on fossil fuels, is unsustainable. Already there are 1.2 million premature deaths in China due to bad air quality, due to fossil fuels. The report goes on. Britain has a unique opportunity to lead this clean cold revolution by developing new technologies, 
and establishing know-how which can be exported around the world. But we must act now and the government has a crucial role to play in turning the UK into a global shop window for our cutting-edge technology and world-class expertise. Worldwide demand for cooling will overtake heating by 2060 by 60%. Refrigeration and air conditioning cause 10% of global CO2 emissions, three times more than is attributed to aviation. The worldwide refrigerated vehicle fleet could more than quadruple from around 4 million today to 18 million by 2025 to satisfy unmet demand in developing countries. EU pollution costs caused by transport refrigeration are expected to rise to 22 billion by 2025. Chinese consumers bought 50 million air conditioning units in 2010 alone. According to the report, an effective cold chain is essential for tackling problems such as food waste, water conservation and public health. It also states that communications networks could be severely affected as data centres could not operate without sufficient cooling. The Birmingham Policy Commission proposes four urgent recommendations for government. Establish a lead government department and an institutional champion to push forward the development of clean cold and take ownership of the issue. Conduct a technology innovation needs assessment similar to the analysis of heating, which concluded that innovation could reduce UK energy system costs between 14 and 66 billion pounds. Develop a rigorous system level analysis of the environmental and financial benefits of the cold economy. Take up the technology roadmap produced by the Commission to guide next steps and progress with the support from innovators to end users of cold. Professor Martin Freer, Director of the University of Birmingham's Energy Institute and co-lead, said the impact of cooling over the coming decades really has been underestimated. This is both a challenge and an opportunity. There needs to be both a rapid development of emerging technologies and a systems level approach. If we, the UK, get this right, the potential for exports, growth, productivity and jobs could be enormous. You're listening to the Sustainable Futures show with me, Anthony Day. Still to come, advances in battery science from Cambridge, more about the Paris Conference, yes, even more, more parsnips than you can eat, and more confusion from Volkswagen. First, though, David Cameron was in Iceland this week to talk about energy. Iceland reportedly meets around 95% of its own electricity needs using geothermal sources. This is probably not difficult, given its total population of 323,000, which is slightly more than Milton Keynes, but quite a lot less than Edinburgh. Up till now, exporting energy has been considered almost impossible because of Iceland's remote location. However, British officials told the Press Association that a new UK-Iceland Energy Task Force had been set up to examine the feasibility of a 750-mile undersea power cable between Iceland and the UK. I wonder whether that will come into England or to Scotland. The task force has been told to report back in six months. 
Details of the capacities and the costs are sketchy, but I'll let you know if I can find out any more. Or maybe you know more. Please share. I can't help thinking, though, wouldn't more solar farms or wind turbines be a lot easier and probably cheaper? I've covered electric cars in several previous episodes. There is no doubt that they are developing rapidly, but the problem continues to be battery capacity and range anxiety. This week, the University of Cambridge announced that they are working on what they hope to be the ultimate battery. They have developed a working laboratory demonstrator of a lithium oxygen battery, which has very high energy density, is more than 90% efficient, and to date can be recharged more than 2,000 times, showing how several of the problems holding back the development of these devices could be solved. Lithium oxygen or lithium air batteries have been touted as the ultimate battery due to their theoretical energy density, which is 10 times that of a lithium ion battery. Lithium ion batteries are the ones we use at present in electric cars, phones, and all sorts of rechargeable electronic devices. Such a high energy density would be comparable to that of petrol and would enable an electric car with a battery that is a fifth the cost and a fifth the weight of those currently on the market to drive from London to Edinburgh on a single charge. However, as is the case with other next generation batteries, there are several practical challenges that need to be addressed before lithium air batteries become a viable alternative to petrol. So far, the experimental units are running on pure oxygen rather than air. The problem with air is that apart from oxygen, it contains other gases, pollutants and moisture which can corrode and damage the battery. It is estimated that it will take at least 10 years to overcome these problems, but the potential rewards are enormous. The new units could be used not only for electric cars, but also for storage to support the grid, so solar energy could be stored for use at night and wind energy stored for when the wind doesn't blow. Let's hope the government will give full backing to this sort of research. The latest edition of Jeremy Leggett's The Winning of the Carbon War is out. It's a free download from jeremyleggett.net. That's Leggett with a double G and a double T. jeremyleggett.net Announcing the latest instalment, he sounds really optimistic, quoting recent headlines. Fossil fuel companies risk plague of asbestos lawsuits as tide turns on climate change. Paris climate deal to ignite a $90 trillion energy revolution. The old fossil order is on borrowed time as China and even India join the drive for dramatic cuts in CO2 emissions. He's less optimistic when he tells us about his visit to the UK's annual solar trade fair, where three of the bigger companies have gone out of business following the government's rapid dismantling of the subsidy regime. Cutting the subsidies will help hard-working families by reducing the average annual electricity bill by between 40p and £1, he claims. But... The Paris climate deal is unstoppable. No amount of lobbying is going to change the direction. This quotation is from Christiana Figueres, head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
Echoing the recent report from Climate Change Action, she confirmed that the pledges made so far by governments would not be enough to hold the increase in global temperatures to 2 degrees centigrade. However, she rejected the suggestion that Paris would be a rerun of the Copenhagen Conference with much talk and no action. There will be an agreement because, from where I stand, I see only increasing political will on the part of all governments, she said. The Paris deal needs to add to the national pledges a path of continuous improvement that will lead to the two-degree target. She was optimistic about governments delivering their pledges because they all stem out of the national interest of these countries and hence stand a much better chance of being implemented than anything that is external and punitive. And this week the Buddhists joined the Catholics and the Muslims in publicly supporting a climate deal. In fact, the Buddhists want to hold the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The Buddhist climate change statement to world leaders urges them to act with wisdom and compassion in Paris and agree to phase out fossil fuels and move towards 100% renewable energy and clean energy. Leaving energy for the moment, did you catch Hugh Fernley Whittenstall's War on Waste on the BBC this week? It's not the first programme of its type, but things don't seem to have got much better, and he shared a lot of statistics. For example, every household in the UK wastes, on average, £15 worth of food each week. The main themes he tackled were the supermarket's obsession with cosmetically attractive vegetables, the waste of fast food, and the perfectly usable things which are found in the waste destined for landfill. He made the very important point that whatever we send to landfill, we are not only discarding the product, but also the labour, the energy and the materials that go into making it, as well as all the effort involved in distribution. He showed us tens of tonnes of parsnips which had been rejected by the supermarket. There was so much waste that the farmer could not make a living. Of course, there are many different factors involved here. First of all, there is no justification for discarding food just because it doesn't look pretty. In fact, an industry specialist said that whenever there was a bad harvest, the supermarkets would accept anything that was available, misshapen or not, and it didn't affect their sales. Agriculture's perennial dilemma is matching supply with demand. Whether harvests are good or bad is determined to a large extent by the weather. If there's a bumper harvest, then the supermarkets can pick and choose and take only the most attractive vegetables. Perhaps the farmer grew more than he could sell to protect himself against a poor harvest and to protect himself against some of the crop being rejected. In the end, there was more than he could sell at any price. The problem with that particular vegetable, parsnips, is that it's low value and therefore not worth freezing or preserving in any other way. It's the farmer who takes the risk, and apparently the farmer who featured in the programme is no longer in business. This supermarket initially offered an interview, but finally declined and appears to have put pressure on the farmer not to take part either. The supermarket was named, but I imagine they are all as bad as each other. The programme looked at a typical load of rubbish from a municipal dust cart and found all sorts of things which should have been recycled, tins and bottles and so on. They also found large quantities of clothing which was still perfectly good once washed. There was metal which should have been recycled and cookware and cutlery too good to throw away. Have they not heard of free cycle? 
If you've not heard of FreeCycle, it's a bit like eBay, except that you just give things away after advertising them online. Turning to recycling, the programme found a number of consumers in the street who didn't believe that recycling really happened and it was all a con by local government. They wouldn't separate the rubbish, why should they? It wasn't their job, it's what they paid council tax for. Fortunately, their attitudes changed when they were taken around a recycling plant and saw exactly how everything is separated and reused where possible. They were quite amazed by some of the products which are made from recycled materials. And then the fast food sector. The case study was KFC, the BBC's favourite fast food brand. A web search and some back-of-the-fag packet calculations indicated that the chain throws away cooked food equivalent to two and a half million chickens each year in the UK. No, said the company spokesman, it's only one million, which of course is still a vast amount. Ah, they said, but some of our branches donate unsold chicken to charity. How many? Well, six at the moment out of our 870 outlets. However, they committed on camera to increasing that to half of their outlets by the end of 2016. Next week's episode will concentrate on clothing. Apparently we throw away £400,000 worth of clothing every day. But then isn't that an essential part of the growth economy? A major problem with recycling is that we have no national strategy. Every local authority does it differently, so no wonder people are sceptical and confused. You can catch that programme on BBC iPlayer or watch the next episode next Monday, the 9th of November. You can't get away from energy, I'm afraid. I've commented many times on the very narrow gap between UK electricity supply capacity and predicted peak winter demand. The national grid has to match the two. If it can't increase supply, it has to cut demand. This week, National Grid issued a notification of inadequate system margin, NISM, as a result of multiple energy plant breakdowns and very low levels of wind power due to calm conditions. The market duly responded to this signal, the company said. The National Grid described the NISM as one of the routine tools that we use to indicate to the market that we would like more generation to come forward for the evening peak demand period. An additional 500 megawatts had been requested between 1630 and 1830 last Wednesday. There had not been a risk of electricity supplies being disrupted, it said. The Telegraph and the BBC reported that short-term electricity prices spiked to £2,500 per megawatt hour, about 50 times the normal rate. About 40 megawatts of demand-side balancing reserve was ordered, which means that major commercial users turned off plant and equipment. The National Grid plans to increase significantly its use of demand-side management to keep the system in balance. National Grid last issued an NISM in February 2012 and before that in 2009. It's not even cold yet. And finally, the VW saga rumbles on. There was some surprise that Audi and Porsche were brought into the emissions scandal. It surprised me that VW seemed surprised, because my brother-in-law, who drives a large diesel Audi, had already received a letter last month from the director of Audi UK, saying, I am now in a position to confirm that your vehicle is affected by the issue. 
It appears that the problem is not just nitrous oxide emissions, but carbon dioxide as well. There is a strong hint that it is not just diesel vehicles, but petrol vehicles may also be affected. VW says that there are no safety issues arising from these problems. No safety issues for the driver or passengers of VW vehicles, perhaps. 55,000 people die prematurely in the UK from bad air quality. A significant component of bad air quality is vehicle exhaust. The contribution from VW is 40 times higher than it officially claimed. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Anthony Day and you have been listening to the Sustainable Futures Show. I'm sure there'll be more for me to talk about and report on next week. If you have ideas, comments or questions, please do get in touch. It's mail at anthony-day.com And thanks to all of you who have already sent me your feedback. So that's it. Off I go into the fog. Until next time. Thank you.